Hello, and welcome back to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And today, we are going to start the first of a three-part series that's going to talk about the three different ways that we treat mental illness, which is by addressing symptoms using coping skills, by treating the system using mostly boundaries and you know greater skills development, and trauma processing, trauma treatment. Today, we're going to start with coping. I promise this isn't just a comprehensive list of coping skills, which you could probably Google. Uh, I'm going to explain a little bit about the science of coping and what we need to be thinking about as we are learning how to cope or manage the symptoms of mental illness. I first want to start by addressing a common misconception about what self-care is. A lot of people think that self-care is just anything that feels good, and that is totally incomplete, I should say, because self-care, by definition, should care for you. It shouldn't hurt you, meaning that sitting down and eating a Costco chocolate cake while binging on Netflix all day is not a form of self-care that is going to hurt you in the long run. Real self-care treats you, meaning it actually helps to treat your injuries. So, we're going to start today by reading coping or numbing. I'll explain the difference between these two, and then the post after this will explain in greater detail some of the even, even smaller nuances of coping and numbing. So, coping or numbing. In order to treat and heal from emotional injuries, we need to know where the pain is coming from. As scary as it sounds, we do that by actually feeling it. Understandably, there are some injuries that are just too painful to feel all at once or directly. The pain may overwhelm us. That's why it's okay to get an epidural or use prescription meds after surgery. With emotions, however, we have a tendency to try and avoid the pain at all costs, often by numbing. Numbing is the tendency to drown out all unpleasant feelings. Some common ways to do this are Netflix binging, video game marathons, workaholism, social media, drugs, or other forms of dissociation or escape. Numbing prevents us from addressing our problems and processing painful emotions. It contrasts with coping, which includes healthy techniques to take on emotions a little at a time. These might include exercising, eating something delicious, talking with a friend, watching a movie, meditating, napping, walking, or anything else that gives relief, but still allows us to recognize the pain and its source. Of course, these need to be used in moderation, or they too can become harmful numbing techniques. All right, now we're going to go in a little bit more detail here with the post levels of coping, where I talk about five, well, I guess actually six different kinds of ways to treat illness. Levels of coping. What can I do about my problem? There are many answers, but I found that the ways to address our problems generally fit into six categories. Level zero, numbers. You might also call them avoiders. These kinds of solutions may relieve or deflect the pain somewhat, but ultimately end up contributing to your problems. All kinds of addictions fall into this category, as well as other destructive habits, like cutting yourself to feel something, getting multiple piercings or tattoos to gain a sense of control, engaging in risky or impulsive sexual behavior to feel autonomous or induce a dopamine rush, binging on food, TV, sex, thrills, pornography, procrastinating, compulsive shopping, fighting, some people numb out by going to fight someone, 
hoarding. And I also put oversleeping here. And I'm going to add a caveat to this because um, I'm finding that when people are in a strong depressive state and their body feels the urge to sleep, stopping them from doing that doesn't always seem helpful. Uh, but I will admit that there are some situations where people are using sleep to avoid getting better. That doesn't mean it's to avoid doing things, but to avoid facing emotions that they might not feel quite ready yet. So that one's a little bit more complicated. Continuing, it's understandable why someone feeling intense emotions could use these mechanisms to cope with the pain. They give the benefit of staving off extreme anxiety, anger, or despair, which may be necessary for short-term survival. These kind of mechanisms are often used to prevent suicidality, panic, or psychosis in the short term. So they make sense. Level one, distractors. These coping strategies give the benefit of distraction from intense pain without significant long-term damage. They might not contribute to your life, but they can mitigate pain. These might be watching moderate amounts of TV or movies, playing on your phone, light reading, video games, idle chit-chat with friends, taking a nap, or changing things up, like with a new haircut, new phone, redecorating. Next category, the level two, helpers. These coping strategies serve to reduce symptoms by contributing to your overall health or reducing your overall stress. They might not directly address the source, but they can reduce the pain of the symptoms and keep them from getting worse. Things like exercising, meditation or breathing exercises, the expressive arts, painting, singing, dancing, writing, cleaning your house, puzzles or thought games, working on other tasks, projects, things on your to-do list, venting, or planning. Level three, what I call workers. These strategies help increase awareness of the problem and have the potential to reduce the problem at the source. Putting a name to the problem can often reduce its power. So some of these strategies are things that you'll often work on with a therapist. Things like cognitive challenge exercises or worksheets, a behavioral chain analysis, that's where you sit down and you analyze a behavior that you, that you did, that you didn't like, what happened before it, what happened after it, what were you feeling while it happened, what were you thinking, and what are strategies to prevent that behavior in the future. A pros and cons list, emotion identification, perhaps using an emotion wheel or emotion list, journaling about your thoughts and feelings, which is different than journaling about content. When you're journaling about content, you're writing about things that happened. When you're writing about thoughts and feelings, you're writing about what you thought about it and how you felt about it, which has much more therapeutic effect than just writing about what happened. Scan or identifying your emotional sensations and naming them. Remember that all emotions manifest in the body in some way, and identif identifying that body response can have the effect of reducing it, which is pretty amazing. Observing our thoughts through mindfulness processing with a reflective friend who isn't going to try and fix it or challenge you, reading a self-help book, or yoga. And we're going to talk more about that in the following post that we read. But continuing this one, level four, healers. These treatments have you confront the problem straight up and have you come out alive and stronger. They must be managed carefully or they may become overwhelming and become a trauma. They may contribute more to the problem. 
we might liken them to physical therapy or surgery in their effectiveness to create lasting change, as opposed to short-term change, which the other ones are likely to bring about. <clears throat> so, some methods of these are exposure therapy, which puts you in contact with the object or situation you are afraid of, narrative exposure, where you tell or write the story of traumatic experiences until they no longer evoke strong emotion, addiction rehab, where you induce painful withdrawal in a safe place and learn to function without the numbing mechanism that you're wanting before. You don't need to always go to rehab for this because sometimes like taking a fast from social media or from your phone or from TV or from sugar can have withdrawal symptoms for you, but also bring about some pretty significant changes. Body sensation exposure, where you focus on that uncomfortable body sensation of an emotion until it either disappears or reaches tolerable levels. Setting boundaries and maintaining them. Confronting those with whom you have tension until it is resolved. Making other systemic changes in work or school or your living situation. And we're going to talk about that in more detail in the next podcast episode or applying new skills and education to old problems, such as in communication or parenting. You'll find that those things use a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of gasoline, um, and again, they must usually be done in pretty managed environments, safe, sterile environments. And then level five, the growers. These activities grow you as a person. They're they're not treating a problem, but they're preventing problems from occurring. They are a form of stress, but they're enjoyable because you choose to do them. Some of you might know this as you stress. Things like taking classes, reading books to gain knowledge, exercising to improve your fitness rather than just, you know, ward off injury, dating to find a partner or working on courting your current partner, developing a hobby, reaching out, to make friends or to your old friends, helping someone heal from their emotional injuries, getting involved in your culture, researching your family history, learning an art, seeking career advancements, developing spirituality, doing service projects, or volunteering. These categories, these six categories that I've just read, describe the various ways we might interact with our problems. You may have noticed that the levels increase in difficulty. Um, they also happen to correlate with like where we are in our brain. Um, if you want to look back at the brain and the bucket or the therapeutic interaction model or the steps model. The level zero numbers are almost automatic. They take very little effort and people often feel like they have little choice in using them. The level one distractors are easy as long as you aren't too deep in the survival brain. Like it is possible for some people to not even be able to play on their phone or watch TV or play video games because it's too hard. Like they can only do something like, you know, numb out in a nap or look at pornography or, uh, or cut themselves to get out of that state that they're in. The level two helpers take some more concerted effort. You know, there's things like cleaning your house or, um, or exercising. And they require that you don't already feel flooded. I wouldn't expect somebody who is totally like stone cold depressed to be able to do things in that level two category. It just, it just wouldn't make sense. Um, the brain doesn't want things like exercise and to do tasks when it's in that state. Level three workers require even more emotional bandwidth and are often done with somebody else, like a therapist. Level four healers 
again, require a highly safe and sterile environment. Um, like especially trauma processing is something that is most effectively done and safely done with another person, assuming that that is a safe person. That doesn't mean it's impossible to do on your own. It's just a lot more, it's a lot more scary and, you know, a lot harder to do. Level five growers are done most effectively when you are in the very top of your brain. Those activities, you will, you have to feel safe, logical, and calm in order to really enjoy and get the most out of those activities. If done prematurely, you know, things like taking classes and dating and um, like seeking career advancements or developing your spirituality, those things can go really amiss if you are in the lowest part of your brain. Um, like even, say, like wanting to start an exercise routine, that can go totally awry or just fail miserably if you are down in the anxious or depressed part of your brain. Or, you know, dating without a strong self-esteem can lead to disaster. Um, you can go back and look at the dating podcast episode for more on that. Grower activities can trigger anxiety when you're not ready for them. They can prevent healing and even become numbers or distractors. So take a look at yourself. How much time do you spend doing things from the different levels? Are you spending most of your free time or taking up work, school, or family time numbing or distracting? Are you ready to start enacting healthier behaviors? Are you ready to face your problem head on by developing mindfulness and performing emotional surgery? Do you know what it feels like to create your own stress and enjoy it? Do you need a supportive person, like a therapist, to help you get started? It is much more effective to engage in the higher level behaviors with someone safe checking in or doing them with you. Progress is not linear. The goal here is to increase the average amount of time you spend in the higher categories. Let's start by switching out some numbers for distractors, then add in some less intense helpers. Then we can use some workers to help us identify where we need surgery. We may jump back and forth. It's okay if we relapse and use numbers again. That just tells us something. We can learn something from that process and make it better as we go. Who knows, maybe one day you'll be able to grow rather than just survive. All right, now on to the third post, which is called body language, talking back to anxiety symptoms. So this is giving us some more detail on a kind of a level two or level three, it can turn into a level three coping mechanism, which is you know using our body to to identify and to process emotions. So here it goes, body language, talking back to anxiety symptoms. The human brain's first priority is to survive and will do so at the cost of your long-term health if it feels the need. And in most cases, it would only activate its fight or flight response if it had enough data from experience to justify it. Your anxiety is proportional to some real experience but probably not your current life circumstances, or you wouldn't think that it was problematic. Your anxiety, that is. There are different ways to change the data your brain uses to generate anxiety. The bottom-up approach seeks to change one's experience of the past, working on a lower part of the brain. This is done in emotion-focused therapy and EMDR to recode old data. 
The top-down approach seeks to alter new data as it comes in by creating different present experiences through new behaviors and ways of perceiving the present. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the most common type, and its subtypes ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, or Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, DBT. Both ways, both approaches, have been shown to be effective. Changing the old data affects how we see the present, and taking in new positive data can change how we see the past. I personally lean towards the bottom-up approach, but think it's important that we work from both directions if possible. This post is about some top-down techniques. The middle brain generates the fear response, which sends anxious thoughts to the upper brain and fear triggers to the body. Fortunately, the messaging highway of our nervous system runs both ways. We can convince our middle brain to calm down. If we do it right, that is. Maybe you've tried to tell yourself to stop feeling angry or anxious in a stressful moment and likely had little success. The upper brain and middle brain aren't on speaking terms under stress. However, the upper brain can talk to the lower brain where body functions are controlled and the lower brain can talk to the middle brain. Once the middle brain has cooled off, logic can regain control. We can speak this body language by reversing the physical signs of the fight or flight response, which are an increased heart rate, muscle tension, a tightening diaphragm, which creates that like spring-loaded lung action, for great for running from tigers, restricting your digestion, which feels like a pit in the stomach, butterflies, sick feelings, or in extreme anxiety, voiding, like vomiting or emptying, emptying your bladder or colon, dry mouth, protective posturing, you know, sitting in fetal position, crossing your arms or legs. If we can stop any or all of these signals, we can send the reverse signal to the brain to shut down or reduce the anxiety response. So, if you find that just talking back to the anxiety isn't working, let's get physical. So, this is a list of some techniques that send the opposite signal to the brain um, to reduce the anxiety response. One, sit in a vulnerable position. Laying with spread arms and legs is best, or you know, sitting in an open position. This sends the signal that your body doesn't need protection. You're exposing all of your vital organs, what you're saying is, we must not be in danger right now if we're laying like this. It's the opposite of fetal position. Breathe slowly, more out than in. This is the opposite of hyperventilating, where you go, <gasps> and you're breathing more in than you are out. The opposite sounds like this. If the lungs slow down and they're spending more time breathing out, they tell, that tells the heart to slow down, which sends a signal to our brain that we must not be in danger. Use your breathing to stretch out the diaphragm and the belly, you know, stretching out that tight chest or that, that tight stomach feeling. You can reduce the tension in your gut and chest by just using your lungs to stretch them out. Let the body know that these don't need to be constricted. Next, relax your muscles. Massage, stretching, hot water, or a cold compress can make a muscle relax, which sends the signal to the middle brain that, hey, we're not tensing right now. Um, that actually reduces your emotional response, which is why a massage feels calming. 
Last one, activate saliva. That dry mouth feeling is an anxiety response, so inducing saliva sends the reverse response. Doing something to get your spit glands pumping can actually reduce your anxiety. Try something salty or some other strong flavor. Sour candy, black licorice, ginger chews, wasabi peas. Um, I usually keep some like dark chocolate or strong mints in my office, and it can actually help people come out of a panic attack. Um, I often reference... Harry Potter 3, where Professor Lupin gives Harry some chocolate after his encounter with Dementors. Try any one or all of these to see if they help you get through an anxious moment. I find they won't often take away your chronic anxiety, but sometimes we just need to cope through some stressful situations. Once the edge is taken off the anxiety, it becomes easier to use cognitive skills to change perception. But remember, the activity that combines nearly all of these physical counters to anxiety is... Yoga. A regular yoga regimen has been shown to reduce symptoms in various mental illnesses with as much effectiveness as medication and therapy. Yoga is a superpower. So if you have the opportunity, please do it. All right. For this last segment, I'm going to be reviewing a short post called Suppressing or Compartmentalizing. Suppressing is a way of coping that is, you know, essentially a form of numbing. It's usually done without, you know, not deliberately, and tends to lead to problems later on. Compartmentalizing is when you suppress an emotion on purpose with the intent to work on that emotion later and having a plan to work on it later. So here is the short post, suppressing or compartmentalizing. I insist on you feeling and expressing your emotions always, but that doesn't always mean right when they happen. Sometimes healthy compartmentalizing can get us through stressful situations without a breakdown and without stuffing feelings that could come out in unplanned ways later on. In the heat of battle, our survival responses keep us from feeling pain until we're ready. Adrenaline, endorphins, and dissociation are all the body's natural anesthetics. They're active until the battle is over, when you can address your wounds. An issue arises when you stay numb longer than you need to. Your body is safe, but you don't let yourself feel the pain, thus keeping you from treating it. The injuries rack up until you become crippled and you don't even know why. So, how do we make it through our daily battles and heal from the wounds we incur? If you come from a culture of suppression, you need to identify how you learn to keep from feeling pain. Do you distract yourself and stay busy all the time? Do you sleep a lot or find other ways to stay unconscious? Drugs, alcohol, prescription meds maybe? Do you avoid confrontation, setting boundaries, or hard topics at all costs? Do you mentally or physically run from your problems? When you identify your coping mechanism, you can find out what happens when you don't use it, usually feeling some emotional pain your brain wants you to address. Then you can decide if you can address it right now or put it into an appropriate compartment until you're ready for it, maybe tonight, tomorrow, this weekend, or in therapy. This sometimes requires a deliberate mental exercise to put it into a metaphorical box. You might want to look up container exercise on YouTube for examples. The key is that you identify the pain and put off treatment deliberately rather than hope it will just go away, because it probably won't. It is better to decide when, where, and how you will treat it rather than wait for it to come out as a panic attack, depressive episode, anger outburst, or other bodily symptom. So. Those are all the posts that we'll be reviewing today. And just to review a few quick points here. 
there is a lot of nuance to the term coping. Some coping skills distract us from the problem and hurt us. We call those numbers. Some of them don't hurt us, but they also don't help us. Some coping skills help us a little bit indirectly, such as through exercise or taking care of something off our, off our to-do list. Some skills actually address the problem itself things like mindfulness, things that increase your awareness of the problem. And then there are things you can do that directly address the source. And we're going to talk about those more in the next podcast episodes about systemic changes, as well as addressing traumatic stress. And also recognizing that some things are more transcendental, things um, that can actually be harmful if you do them when you're not in a state to do them. Things like taking classes and dating and developing your spirituality. Um, not that you like shouldn't be doing those things, but you have to be aware of how your anxiety plays into them because you can rack up a lot of traumas if you are doing things that are fairly normal when you have a lot of injuries. It's like you know going on a walk when you actually have a broken leg it will make your leg worse. So try and be mindful of what your injuries are, how you're coping with them, and how you might be pushing it too hard. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll catch you at the next episode.